Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. It's really cool to be back. I've been away, literally I missed one Sunday, but it feels like a lifetime. I had the privilege with Mark, who is the lead pastor at Tableview, and we got to travel for just shy of two weeks, and we had the amazing privilege of going up to Alabama to a conference in Alabama, the Deep South, uh, saying Sweet Home Alabama the whole time. Um, it's the only song I know about Alabama and that area. And then we went to New York, and we were at a whole bunch of churches in New York and Atlanta. Uh, if you're aware, these names might not mean anything to you, but Louis Giglio, a church in Atlanta, just amazing opportunities to be with them and their staff, and, and a whole bunch of other churches in New York. It was incredible. And then we spent some time with uh, uh, Terry and Wendy Virgo, who ministered a life change in March, and, and they graciously had us in their home, and uh, they just, it was just an, uh, one of those really special days where, I mean, she made us quiche and rhubarb pie in, in England. Wonderful. I mean, it was a dream, but uh, a real privilege just to go and be inspired, learn, and actually strategize what God has got for us for our next season uh, as a local church. But as I was there, uh, one thing I, before I even preach is I realized that as, as Dorothy said in The Wizard of Oz, there is no place like home. I must tell you that being in some of the, the places that are called the greatest city on earth, I, Cape Town still is up there, and uh, I really believe being in all these other churches one takeaway often we left was going, there really is no church like Life Changes. I, I really believe, honestly, with all integrity, say this is an incredible church with an incredible history and an amazing family. But as, as, as we went, we're so stirred with what God has got for our future. So if you are part of Life Changes, I think you're in for an exciting ride. God has got a great story ahead of us. But um, as I was there in New York, uh, uh, New York, if you've never been there or if you've only seen it in the movies, it's this, this amazing city that's, that's spread over five different boroughs or suburbs. But the one suburb that we are all probably familiar with or what everyone will say when they say they go to New York, they don't talk about Queens, they don't talk about the Bronx, they don't talk about New Jersey, they talk about Manhattan. The, island, the little slither of land that's got Central Park, that's got the, the Empire State Building, all these tall skyscrapers and Fifth Avenue and Broadway and Times Square. That is what we probably would think of if you imagine it. If you're a YouTuber, that is probably what will come up and you'll see. But the amazing thing is in this little slither of land, it's almost like every square inch of it is taken up with real estate with buildings of extravagant nature. Like there's almost, there's so many people, there's so many buildings, there's almost no space to move. And, I, and I, as I was walking around, I'm, I'm looking, there's just building after building after building, and every little square, a little bit of alleyway is almost taken up with extra people selling wares. There's no space at all in Manhattan. It's just, you, everywhere you look, there's just buildings. And it's so exciting and exhilarating. And uh, it just, it is, it's almost like there's, no, there's buildings to the left of me, as the song would say, buildings to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with no view. It's just my work. Uh, uh, there we go. Thank you very much for those two laughs. I, w I aim to please. But it's an amazing thing that actually, as I started to wonder, and, uh, there's something that we've learned about uh, geographically and about the way the city is built, is that there literally is no more space to build new buildings on Manhattan. It's all taken up. So there's something that often if you're wanting to ask, if you say, if there's no space to go sideways, where else is there to go but up? And it's something that actually is, is hotly disputed, and, and there's lots of legal tenders going on over something called air rights. Maybe if you, you're not familiar with this, but air rights is basically the, the real estate that's available to a property above it. 
Though there's no, nothing built above it, you're a six-story building, but you have got rights to go up to a certain level so that at least that planes don't crash into you and you don't speak about planes crashing into you in New York. Just, it's a no-go area. Thank you, Scott. But, but it's that, that is the, the sort of thing. It's, it's what is called like the building's potential of growth going up. And actually, it's a, an air right is described as something, the right to use and develop the space above the land without interference by others. And as I was thinking about this, it just, it just dropped in my soul this understanding that actually I think life can feel a little bit like the frenetic pace of New York City. I don't know about your life, but my life can feel, very quickly can feel encroached by a lot of things going on, can be very busy, can be filled with a lot going on, feeling limited. But I want to tell you this morning that when we feel limited on, our, on the sides, when our lives are feeling encroached and cramped in, I want to tell you this morning that you have a divine right to go up. You've got, you've got access to go up. And I want to help us this morning. Maybe you're here today and you're feeling hard-pressed on every side. Maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling perplexed. Maybe you're feeling persecuted by what's going on around you. Maybe even feeling struck down. I want to tell you today the good news is that you have limited access above you. I want to help us to stick with me this morning. We're going to read one uh, text of Scripture. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. will be on the screen behind me. And this is what it says. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, I thank you as we have sung, as we gather together. I thank you that you are beautiful. We fix our hearts on you right now and we remind ourselves that you are powerful and that you are everything to us. My prayer this morning on a long weekend, on a cold Sunday morning, is that you would capture our attention like never before. Let faith stir up amongst your people. Let it bubble up. Let it rise up within us. And all across this room, I pray, God, as it does, may strongholds come tumbling down. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to paint the scene very quickly with the scripture before we dive into it. The scripture says that Jesus has just come back to a, a town, a village called Capernaum. And as he's arrived, the news about his arrival has gone ahead of him. 
The, 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 the town are gossiping about this man, Jesus, this miracle worker, this man from Nazareth who is performing extraordinary deeds amongst them. And people are, are at, the, at best perplexed, at, at worst perplexed, at best they are astounded and want to get a glimpse of this man, Jesus, the new celebrity in town. He arrives in this town and the word has been whispered throughout the town that people, I can imagine, are moving at a quick pace to get to the place that Jesus is going to be ministering. They heard he's going to be at this location, this house, this specific house, and they start to move. In my head, I start to hear a large crowd gathering. I can, the more, more dignified of the people are speed walking there. They don't want to run, but they're speed walking. They're trying to get there. But the, the more uh, youthful and exuberant are actually pushing people out the way. They, they are, they're stumbling and they're people falling like Beryl was earlier this morning into the, the door there, Beryl. There's an excitement to be at church. Beryl, you're right. You're still alive. That's serving right there, eh? Even when you bleed. I love it, Beryl. But this is the, the excitement of the, the people. They're all trying to push and jostle and get there. And a house is filling up. A house that is just a two-bedroom little house. I can imagine a little duplex with just enough space for a small family to exist now becomes the centerpiece for revival. As people are shoving their way through a little door trying to get it. No, you go first. Okay, thank you. And they push their way in. And people are, are jumping on the couch and they're having to jump on each other's laps. They, the, the poor couches are almost about to break because people are sitting on the armrests that were not supposed to take their weight. Uh, there are people who are now shuffling up onto the the side table, sitting on the kitchen counter. The people start going in and saying, I'll, I'll, I'll stay, sit on the bathroom toilets. It's got good acoustics, and I can hear from here. People are taking every spare amount of space in this house. It's getting crammed, and Jesus is moving back, trying to find a space. He was expecting just to sit and have some, a cup of tea with friends and possibly watch the local sports on TV. I'm just imagining. I'm just imagining. It's not in the text. But the day becomes hijacked as a crowd that like you haven't seen before squeeze into this tiny little home. So much so that people actually, when it's full. They're saying, there's no more room in here. Literally, we cannot breathe in here. People saying, that's okay. Just open the window. And people are hanging at the window. What do you say? Who, who's that? Who's that? Is that Jesus? Is that him? People are crowded and the entrance is so full that there's no one can even get in. We find this is the, the situation of the story when we pick up what, what Jesus is doing in the midst of this amazing crowd, this amazing gathering of people. I want to tell us three things this morning as we navigate this text. And, and, and there's my notes. Written on toilet paper. There we go. Good. This morning I want to help you with the three things that I believe impede us from accessing the divine rights we have in Jesus. Three things that impede us, and I want to help us as we navigate our way simply through the story, a well-worn text this morning. I want to help us. Number one, they all begin with the letter C, and that's always helpful for me, is the first thing that impedes us is something called crowds. You see, the Scripture says this, that outside of that crowd, Outside of the crowd was a man who was paralyzed and four friends. Other texts just say some friends, some men brought this man to Jesus. But these four friends and this paralyzed man, it says they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowds. They could not access Jesus because the room and the area was so full of people. They could not get this paralyzed man to Jesus. You see, the greatest obstacle I see, first of all, in this story standing between a paralyzed man and his four friends and them getting to Jesus and accessing the divine rights that Jesus has got for them. The greatest obstacle standing in the way of this miracle was not the man's brokenness. The greatest obstacle was the crowd of people all huddled together, ignoring his needs. Let me tell you a story. The other night coming back on the British Airways flight, late at night after a long trip, uh, full of jet lag, waiting to get onto a 
20 to 10 flights all the way back to Cape Town, chomping at the bit to get home to my family. And uh, yeah, they say, and they say there's a, it's a closed gate. So if in the airport, or airport, sometimes you have, you board, you wait out in the, in the open, you all wait, and then they just open the gate, and you one by one, you file into the plane. But this one's got a second extra room where you have to first file into a waiting room, and from the waiting room, then you're going to file into the plane. And uh, at the right boarding time, say, boarding's going to begin, and we all queue, and queue's going down the aisles, and queue's going all over the way, and waiting to get into this room. And we can see through the glass that room is filling up quickly. And after a while, they say, actually, sorry, it's taking long for us to actually get the people from the waiting room into the plane because they, they're still cleaning and fueling the plane. So people have to wait a little bit longer. And uh, we're still on the outside looking into the waiting room. We haven't even got to the plane yet. And then they say, actually, the waiting room's too full. And they say, stop here right now, please. And we stop there and we're waiting and, and, you, and it's exhausted. You're tired. You've walked a, a lot of kilometers in that day and you, you're exhausted. And all you want to do is just get to the seat and you're trying to, but the, all the seats are taken, people standing in by the vending machine in there and all us economy class people are told to wait. And then all the first class and business people, they're still going to make them some access. They're like, no, you guys can come in. I'm like, so you, they're not full, you liars. And, 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 and anger rises up in you for something quite trite and small, but you're like, no, come on, this doesn't seem right that actually you called us to board, but actually the room that you're calling us to doesn't have enough space. And we have to stay on the outside looking in. Let me tell you this morning, as I thought about that moment and the simple frustration that grew in my heart in that moment, looking at other people, sipping their beverages in the waiting room as we had to stand with all the other people like cattle outside, looking in on the air-conditioned room, I want to tell you that as a church, I want to say the greatest challenge is not that we are on the outside looking in. The greatest challenge of the church is that we are on the inside refusing to look out. You see, our faith can be dampened when our eyes are fixed on ourselves, something I call the disease of me. I think the church, the people of God who have divine access to heaven, Sometimes forget about that and they allow themselves to be cramped because our eyes are so fixed on ourselves. You see, as I read scripture, I realize that God's power is linked to his heart. If you want to access the power of God in your life, it is linked to his heart. He is not a cosmic genie who just uh, grants you three wishes. He's a God of compassion and a God of, of, of somebody who feels our needs and responds to our faith as we access his heart. So much so in this, the story preceding the story and the story after it, we see the implications of this like never before. Mark chapter 1 from verse 40, if you go home and read it, there's a story where a man has leprosy. And it says he comes to Jesus and he begs Jesus. He begs Jesus. He says, the scripture says he falls on his knees before Jesus. A man with leprosy who is supposed to be, who is, who's been excluded from community because of his disease, who's been set aside for a long time, who's been on the outside. They have determined, you're the man on the outside. You don't come anywhere near. That man has the courage. He bursts through and he comes to Jesus and he begs Jesus and says, Jesus, if you're willing, please make me well. What is so remarkable about that story is a little line that tells us before Jesus heals him, it says this, moved with compassion. Now, if you go and read in your Bible, you'll see there's a little star over that word compassion. And at the bottom of the text, they'll say it'll give us the, a better rendering of that word compassion. Because compassion can sound light and fluffy. It can sound like something that you do when you see a little puppy that's been lost and you are oh, compassion. That, or that's just the way I often see the word compassion. That's for other people, mercy-hearted people. But as I read this line, it says move with compassion. Go read in your Bible. It says this. The other better rendering is moved with anger. What? That doesn't sound right. 
It says, moved with compassion slash anger, Jesus reached out and touched him and said, your faith has made you well. There's something of a violence towards this compassion. There's something of God's heart that is, he is actually, when, when I actually was reading up on it, this actually commentators say that anger is not an anger at the man, it's an anger at, at his disease and society's treatment of him. That is what compassion is, true compassion, that does not focus on actually the need of people, but actually goes beyond this. Is actually, I want to fight for what's broken inside of you. And as I saw this, I started to realize that Jesus is moved with an angry, violent compassion to the things that break his heart. Mark chapter 2, the story after this, verse 17, it tells us that Jesus is walking after this miracle in this house that takes place that we're going to walk through this morning. It says he walks along and he sees a man who's called Levi, a tax collector, who's despised. Again, another man on the other spectrum, not a diseased man, but a man because of his profession, because of his, his, uh, his greedy nature, is despised by community and isolated by community. He sees a tax collector. Levi, and Jesus, without saying another word, without addressing the, 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 the questions that most people would ask the tax collector, he just says to him, follow me. And immediately says, Levi left the tax booth and followed Jesus. The next thing that happens is Levi takes Jesus to his house and throws a massive party. And the people who invite to this party, it says, other tax collectors and other people who are, the scripture says, notorious or reputable sinners. Now, you have to know if you are a really, really big sinner, you get the word reputable and notorious before you. It's like quite a, that's when you know you're good at your sin. That guy, it's not just a sinner. He's known for his sin. Those are the people invited to this party. And the religious elites are furious that Jesus would go and have a party, not just with Levi's house, but all the Levi's cronies and other incredible, like reputable known sinners. Their sin would have been debaucherous if it's known in community. Jesus is having a party with them, and, and, and the guys come, the religious lead come to Jesus and say to him, why do you eat with such scum? That's the word they use. They say, why do you eat with such scum? And Jesus replies to him, says, the healthy people don't need a doctor, sick do. He says, I came not to those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. So the story is prefaced with people who are isolated from community, people who are cast off community, and God's heart has moved not away from them, but towards them in, in, in violent compassion. That is the heart of Jesus. If you want to link his heart, find his power, you have to find his heart. What moves his heart is the things that often don't move our heart because we're concerned about ourselves. There's a story in America now, I had the privilege of hearing a man, John Maxwell. I, I, never, I, I don't know if you know John Maxwell, a great leadership guru. And I don't know much about him, but I heard him speak. And, uh, and I, I must be honest, I didn't really know much about him. But he, the, he said, uh, and he's sp he spoken in many conferences on leadership, and I was expecting him to speak on that. He says, this morning I want to tell you about personal evangelism. Like, that's strange, but you're a leadership guru. And he says, you guys might know that I do leadership and co uh, for companies and corporates all around the world. He said, but actually I'm a pastor at heart. But after a while I realized that I was preaching to the church every week when actually my heart was moved to preach to people who did not know Jesus. And he said, I, I, I pray, God, how can I have access to those people? And God said, take the gift I've given you and go and minister to them with that gift. So he started his ministry of doing leadership training, but he says, if you want to know why I do leadership training, he says, my heart is not moved by trying to get people to be better leaders. That's what I sell them. He says, underneath it all is that I want to tell them about Jesus. And he told story after story, and one story he says, he says, pastors, you guys have an easy job. You've got a, a congregation who say amen when you say something good. He says, you've got someone who's got a band behind you that make you sound profound. 
He said, I've got none of that. I've got a whole bunch of people who are just looking at me, eyeballing me, and just have no clue what my background is. We've got no affinity with one another. They just want some, what I have and to move on. He said in Australia, he did this conference where there was thousands and thousands of corporates, big lanis, and he was doing leadership training all weekend with them. But he had made the arrangement with the organizer. He said, I'll give you guys a, a deal on my price that if, if I can speak to you, I'll do all the training you've asked. But on the Sunday morning, I'd like access to the chapel, and I'd like to make an advert to all the people who attend that I'm going to be doing a chapel service the next day telling my story. They said, go for it. Go for it. We'll give you the chapel at 7 a.m., they said. He was like, and they said, we'll give you half an hour. I said, oh, cool. That sounds great. End of the conference, everyone is so pumped up on leadership. He's done his, his skill. is amazing. Everyone, like thousands of people are like, John Maxwell, John Maxwell. He's like, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so glad I've inspired you and helped you. Tomorrow, if you want to hear my story and my journey in faith, I'll be in the chapel tomorrow at 7 a.m. Everyone, yay, that's cool. The next morning, thousands the day before, he says he stood on the stage and he said about 50 people stumbled in. Some of them were a little bit still drunk from the party the night before and were trying to find their way to their rooms. And he said he had never felt more lonely than that moment. So he had never felt more lonely standing there actually wondering, is it, what am I doing here? Is this even real? Where I felt more authority yesterday when I was speaking to a secular, in a secular way, but today I'm trying to share my faith. But it just feels like I'm alone in this massive, uh, uh, voluminous building with 50 people and dotted in seats. He said he preached, told his story, preached the gospel. And they, that day about 30 or 40 people responded and gave their lives to Jesus. He says, on that moment, when they came to the front for prayer, weeping, he said, I've never felt more alive. And I, as I heard that story, and as I've been thinking about it, I realized that actually this is what we're made for. But so often we get sold and, uh, uh, and suckered into a different path, and we say that's for an elite few. Even on the plane trip out of South Africa a couple weeks Sundays ago, it was after a great conference, a ladies' conference. Richard Mungavin had been here in the morning. I was filled with faith. It was amazing, full, so pumped, uh, excited for the trip ahead. I had worship music in my ears. I walked into the plane, sat down, and started scrolling through the movies, thinking this is, this is going to be incredible. What a night. What an amazing trip ahead. And it was only about an hour into the trip that I suddenly realized that there's a girl next to me who's just sitting there quietly, and she look, keeps looking at her phone, and tears are running down her face. And I'm like, why did I get to sit next to her? <laughs> Be honest. Be honest. I, I, I really was going, I don't want to, why do I have to deal with this now? And I'm just thinking, turn up the worship music. She will never know. Just, I'm just I'm busy here, sorry. But as, as the flight went on, I just thought, I can't. I can't sit here and not talk to this person and ask them what's going on. And, 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 I mean, and it wasn't in a dramatic thing. It wasn't like conviction. God saying, this is your person. It wasn't anything of that sort. It was almost like, oh, here it goes. Hi, my name's Gabe. Tell me your story. Just started to speak. Started to share a story. And as I, she was on this trip, and, and the story is, I won't tell the story because I'm trusting that she's going to come to church because that ended with me praying with her and her, inviting her to our city launch because she lives in that area. But as I, as I finished and she was, hey, have, like best friends leaving the plane, I just start going, you know, sometimes I think we get so consumed with what we're doing and that we think life is like this and we get so cramped with life when God says, actually, I've given you divine access for the ones next to you. Crowds can stop us accessing what God has. Secondly, not only crowds, ceilings. You see in the story, I see these four men. They saw the crowd, and I can imagine the four guys arriving there. They've come, they heard Jesus coming, saying, we've got to get our mate. He has never walked. We've got to get him to Jesus. Because if we get him to Jesus, he'll walk. So they make this plan. They're so excited. We'll pick you up this time. We'll get there. They arrive there, and they say, see big signs saying, sold out, sold out. Just my imagination again. But it's like, they're like, hot. No, 
No, no, no, no. This is our one chance to get our mate here. They're seeing all the crowds. They're like, what are we going to do? And then all of a sudden, I can imagine, almost like they, they sink, these four mates. All of a sudden, seeing all the crowds, all of, one, one at a time, their eyes go, Duk. and they look up. And the paralyzed guy's going, no, guys. No, guys. I know it. No, guys. We've done well. Let's go home. It's cool. I'll make you tea at home. We've got it. We'll be fine. Please, please. And he's like, they're like, we've got an idea. They're like, you think well, I, I, we can do it? We can do it. No, guys. It's not, not a good idea. Like, buddy, we've got you. We've got you. And, and it's this incredible understanding in this moment. The scripture says, they saw the crowds, so they dug a hole in the roof above his head. I, I just, something about faith starts to stir in my heart because here's my understanding for time's sake this morning is our expectation is Jesus' invitation. Our expectation is his invitation. You see, we can so easily be seduced into low expectations. To quote Charles Dickens, I think if Charles Dickens was writing about South Africa at this time, and often our response would be, it's the worst of times, it's the worst of times. Because we are so easily sucked into low expectations. We, get, we say things, of course I didn't get the promotion. That's you know, my boss, he just had it in for me for a long time. We say things like, what else did you expect from the government? We say things like, I, you know, that's, I just, that's me. I always let myself down. We say these things that roll off our tongues because, we, tongues because we get so comfortable with low ceilings, low satisfaction with our potential. I've even heard myself and people around me say things like, this is just not a spacious season for me. I'm not in a spacious place at the moment. Make it a bit more real. People say things like this. My boss my leaders, they've put a cap, a lid, a limit, a ceiling of what God can do. My salary, my relationships, my finances, my health, they're all ceilings on me. The right now is not the ideal time for God to move in my life. As I re remind us about Airite's example, you know what happens when a building has six stories, but it potentially can reach 32 stories? If it's not accessing that space above it, the buildings next door to it have legal right to take the, what is rightfully that buildings and add it onto their skyscraper. So when there's unused potential, the next door buildings are chomping at the bit saying, are you not going to use that? Because we're going up if you're not. And actually, I think so often, as, as, if, I, if we were to look with eyes this morning, well, how, how high would our faith be, the ceilings of our lives, what we expect in God to do? I think so many of us have allowed for low ceilings and say, this is the space I operate in. This is all that God has got for me. And we allow the ceilings to come upon us. But actually, I love the fact that, that you see this moment that when, when, when others were just there seeing needs, and turning away in frustration, these guys, when others were seeing the perimeter, these guys were seeing the potential. When others were seeing this is, hey, the, this, the crowd cannot get any closer to Jesus. Guys were settling to be on the edge. Four, five guys, four helping one guy saw the potential that actually we can get to Jesus. There's something in this, as I read it this, this week, it stirred in my heart. The Bible tells us they removed the roof. Or was another uh, translation says they tore the roof off. Again, I see some violence in that. This is not some Sunday school neat and tidy response to Jesus. This is a radical response. They tore the roof off. Now, what is huge this morning, I want to help us, is that roofs of a typical home in that day were composed of clay tiles, which were laid on a mat of branches and grass supported by wooden beams and held together by this incredible substance called manure. Manure. 
So you can imagine, when these guys climbed up there and they got on the roof, they had to pull off tiles, they had to pull wooden beams apart. This was not some, this wasn't like just, let's get a little pocket knife. Where's your pocket knife? Just cut. No, no, this was no paper mache home. This was a home that needed to be ripped apart. And as they started to rip, they got to the layer of manure that had dried and held this thing together. And I can imagine as they rip it apart, a bit of the rain might have got some mushy areas. And, oh, that's another bit of an odor. As they, but no, they wouldn't be dissuaded. They kept pulling it apart because they were convinced they just had to get their friend to the feet of Jesus. And nothing was going to dissuade them. Can I tell you in this moment, as I started to read this, I started to realize in my life that I can so easily allow my own mess, my own sin, and can I use the word in church, my own crap, just using the word manure there. It's a synonym. But I can allow my own crap to become my, my ceiling, ceiling for that's just who I am. That's just my vice. That's my limit. That's my capacity. And I'd say that you are in a similar boat often too. We allow our sin, our brokenness, our manure be the cap on what we're going to allow God to do in our lives. I want to say to you, do you have friends who can pull you above your mess and not just sit in it with you? This guy had four friends who were determined not just to sit there and say, actually, we're going to make you as comfortable as possible in your paralyzed state. You see, we often get surround ourselves with friends who will come and say, yes, your wife is terrible. Yes, your situation is bad. Oh, your boss is the worst. And they just agree with our level of brokenness. When actually these friends said, we're not going to allow you to sit where you are. We're going to lift you up and dig through the crap to get you to Jesus. Do you have friends like that in your life? If you don't, stick around and meet some people here. Because you see, what I love is the fact that it says this, Jesus, when he looked up and the roof started to cave in and, and manure and tiles and timber started to fall and the crowd are running for cover and they're bumping into people. It's chaos down below. I can imagine people screaming, what's going on? Jesus is looking up, smiling. And he looks up, the Bible tells us, he's seeing their faith. Whose faith? The four friends. The paralyzed guy didn't even have faith in a moment. It was the four friends, their faith, that pleased Jesus enough to heal the paralyzed man. How profound is that, that a community can, can apprehend Jesus' attention for individuals? You see, I want to ask you this question. Are you the type of friend who isn't afraid to get your hands dirty in the mess of people's lives to break through their limitations? You see, I feel, honestly, this morning I feel some in myself and I prayed in you that there's some tear the roof of faith building inside of you, faith that climbs buildings and starts making a way through barriers. I want to tell you that tear the roof kind of faith is messy. It disrupts the norm and the status quo, but it's a faith that commands Jesus. In a crowd of people that were pressing in on him, a crowd probably full of diseased people, full of people with needs, full of people who needed a miracle. But it was four friends who got one man to the feet of Jesus, and his attention moved away. The crowd almost could have been disappeared in Jesus' eyes as he looked up and he saw their faith. Tear the roof of faith, apprehends Jesus, and say, Jesus, I need you. And we'll not settle at barriers. We'll not settle at standing in crowds. We're standing at the base of crowds, not looking outside. We'll not be, be dissuaded by the low ceilings of our lives, but we'll rip those ceilings open and say, Jesus, I need you accessing the divine rights we have in him. Thirdly and finally this morning, not just crowds, not just ceilings, it's critics. You see, the scripture says that some of the teachers of the religious law were sitting there thinking to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Can you imagine the scene? 
It's chaos. It's wild. It's like a revival. People are climbing through windows to see Jesus. They, they, there's a noise. They're having to listen, and Jesus is, do, is doing incredible things. So all of a sudden, the ceiling breaks open. There's dust everywhere. What is going on? People are coughing. People are moving. A, a, a lame man is being lowered down by a rope, and they're swinging it. What is going on here? This is crazy. This is exciting. Then Jesus goes, I'm going to forgive your sins. It's just this wild moment. And in the corner, there's just these Lemon-sucking faces. What is this? this how, how, how dare they make such a noise? How dare this happen? You know? And how, who is this guy forgiving sins? Blasphemy. I want to say that when your circumstance seems paralyzed, limited, and no ability to move forward, like this guy, we always have the option that we can still move our hearts towards Jesus. Maybe you say today, my situation is not able, I do not have the potential to change my situation. The paralyzed man did not have the potential and his ability to change the situation. But in that moment, he had a choice. I can't move my body, but I can move my heart. But you see, in this moment, I look at, I see the paralyzed man who could not walk. I believe he had more active faith than the religious elites because he was, even in his little way, the roof was being torn off by his friends, but he was dangling at their mercy in front of Jesus going on his way down. But there was other guys sitting. I tell you, this guy, paralyzed man, had more faith than those who were just sitting in the corner thinking to themselves. Here's the thought here, is that when God is on the move in your life, there will always be critics. To, be, to make it more legit for the, for the younger people here, there will always be haters. Haters going to hate. Let me tell you this. Noah built the ark. By faith, God spoke and Noah built the ark. He starts building. God says, I'm going to send a flood. There hasn't been rain for centuries. I'm going to, don't know what rain is. Flooding the earth with water. Build a boat. Okay. Starts building the boat. Can I tell you, from the moment he built the boat till the rain came, scholars tell us conservatively would have been 50 years. Think about it. We often, my head, I thought it was like build the boat Bit of criticism, two weeks later, rain came. Told you so, haha, <laughs> suckers. 50 years. His kids growing up, the Bible tells us they, they were born when he was 500, that conservatively the rains came only later when he was much older. For years, his kids grew up with people going, Oh, you're the son of that nut job. Banging away at the boat. The rains are coming. Yeah, sure they are, my friend. Like, whoa, what's going on? Like, you know, that sort of guy, he's from Hicksville, that guy, building the boat. For, for, but responding in faith because God has spoken. You see, here, here's my understanding. And this little, little I, I really believe a little uh, sum. I'm not good at maths, but I feel this is a good sum for us. That if you want to know what true authority looks like in your life, opposition plus opportunity equals authority. I'll say it again so some of you can internalize it or write it down. Because I think it's good. Opposition plus opportunity equals authority. Because how you handle opposition and take opportunities determines your level of authority. You want, you want help with that? Joseph. Man promised much, divine rights, his life exploding ahead of him, but then gets curtailed by man's hand. He's at the very end of his life thrown in a prison. I can imagine feel his whole life being squeezed around him. There's no potential. The ceiling's very low in his life. But in that moment, as opposition comes, and in a moment they come and they, the two other guys in the prison say, could you translate our dreams? Opportunity comes. And in that moment, the way he handled the opposition and the opportunities, when those moments collided, it led to his true authority being released. I can give you story after story. Moses and Pharaoh, let my people go. No. Authority only came when opposition collided with the opportunity. 
True authority only comes when David and Goliath, he comes at home. He could have come and said, boys, I bought your lunch. Who's that big guy? I'm going home. But only true authority was released. There's promises over David's life, but only true authority was released when the opposition saying, who comes against me with the sling and the spear? Who, who are you? I'll destroy you. When opposition came and the opportunity came and everyone else bowed away, that's when true authority was relieved. Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't have time to go through it, but opposition plus opportunity. So often we want authority, but we are cowering away. We're thinking because opposition's come, obviously that's not my time. I'm in a tough situation. That's not for me. No, the opposition is actually an opportunity for you to walk in authority. People of tear the roof of faith don't look at opposition and go, I'm out of here. They step forward. They don't see the ceiling and say, that's not for me then. Obviously, it's full. I want to land by telling you a story about a man named Winston Churchill. Had the privilege of uh, going to the, the war rooms of Winston Churchill this last week. Spending two and a bit hours with headphones, listening to the life of this remarkable man. One of my historical heroes. But all of us might know of his victory as the... the the Prime Minister of England who, who led them into an incredible victory against the Germans in 1940, but rewind his life to 1915 during the, the, the height of World War I as, as the Allied forces against the German forces were, were fighting this, this epic battle. He was the first Lord of the Admiralty. He commanded the ships. And Winston Churchill had this great idea and this moment where he said, actually, he thought, thought of himself as a, a great strategist. So he said, actually, at this moment in 1915, at the, the start of the war here, two years in, he says, if we take, the, for, for his time's sake, the Dardanelles, which is Dardanelles Strait, which is by Turkey there, he said, if we take that area, we'll be able to win a strategic victory. They'll push the, 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 the German forces, the, the, the opposition forces backwards and win a huge strategic war for the Allies. And people, they, put, they said, right, we're going to do that. But because of this decision that Winston Churchill made as the, the head of the ships, the fleet of our the, the, the Lord of the Admiralty. He sent all these ships and he put, they put so many coins in this one, the eggs in this one basket and they went after this battle there. For time's sake, that battle there was an epic failure. They lost 46,000 allies' lives. They lost hundreds of ship, ships and all of those in, in the way that government works and po politics works, works, that whole failure was attributed to Winston Churchill. And from that moment, he stepped down as the Lord of the Admiralty. He, he stepped out of politics. He actually went and joined the army, went and fought on the front lines for two years. But actually, from that moment, from 1915 all the way through to 1940, the failure, the Dardanelles Strait, plagued him for years. Some of the quotes about him, that actually his political opponents taunted when he stood up to speak in the House of Commons, they would yell out, remember the Dardanelles! When running for parliament in 1923, hecklers called out, what about the Dardanelles? The British bulldog heard and embraced the, the, the Battle of Gall Gallipoli as a brilliant failure. You see, a political insider speculated in 1931 that the ghosts of the Dardanelles would always rise up to damn him anew. He'll never be able to outrun this Dardanelle failure. And upon t at the, at, at just short of a year before becoming prime minister in 1939, the news declared... If he runs for office, it'll be another Dardanelle failure. 24 years later, still they're attributing that failure to his life. But upon taking office in 1940, he wrote this. He said, all my past life, including the Dardanelles, has been a preparation for this hour and for this trial. You know, if you know history, the rest is history. As his life became, as he became what is declared as one of the citizens of that, that century, the citizen of the, of the world who, who brought victory to the allies and freedom for the European uh, community and the world at large. 
as I just read these stories and heard these stories in you, I, I felt strongly to say maybe you have failed in your past. And the enemy has been taunting you about it for years. He's taunting about your failure, failure in your marriage, your failure as a husband, your failure as a wife, your failure as a parent, your failure as a Christian, your failure of, of trying to beat that secret addiction. You've got that secret that is haunting you. And the, but the enemy keeps pulling that over. You keep saying, remember the Dardanelles. And with every step, it dogs you along the track and it feels like the roof of your life has been pushed lower and lower and you've settled. You're saying, I'm actually okay with this. I'm okay with this low ceiling over my life. I want to tell you this morning that I'm praying that there's a bit of a tear the roof off faith that starts to rise up in you and I. I want to tell you, it's only Jesus. If we tear that roof off, it's only Jesus who will bring us alive. You see, the real reason is the fact that we're told in Jesus, Scripture tells us in the book of Isaiah that Jesus, when He came down, He rendered the heavens. It means He tore open the heavens and came down. Scripture tells us that He tore, Jesus alone tore the curtain that separated God and man. Finally, it tells us that his body was broken, torn apart so that we could come in. In every image, Jesus is the great terror of the roofs. In every image, Jesus is the great terror of the heavens, the separation between God and man, the ceiling that separates us from God. We have image again, of image and again image of Jesus ripping that roof violently. We said we felt compassion, he felt anger and violence, that actually he suffered violence. His death was not meek and mild. It was a violent death to rip every ceiling, every stronghold, every bondage off our lives so that we could have the divine access to air rights, divine access to Him, limitations of our lives broken off, not because we're great, but because He is great. I started off by asking us a question, maybe you're feeling hard-pressed, maybe you're feeling perplexed, maybe you're feeling persecuted, maybe you're struck down. Paul, the apostle, said this, we are hard-pressed on every side. Yes, we do have limitations, but we are not crushed. Paul said this, we are perplexed but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed because we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. Let's stand and pray at this moment. Can we close our eyes in this moment? Tear the roof off faith. Jesus, right now, I pray in every single heart here would hearts start to be stirred above a moment of church, above a moment of rhetoric from a red-headed preacher, a moment above just a church service. I pray, God, for faith to rise in every heart. Faith that only comes by the preaching of your word and faith that only comes by the revelation of Jesus. I pray faith to explode into every story, into marriages that have gone for 20 years, into marriages that have gone for one year, marriages that are doing well or marriages that are limping. God, into relationships, into friendships, into families, into finances, into, into spiritual following of you, Jesus, into addiction spaces, into every space. I pray right now, God, tear the roof of faith to emerge in our hearts. With every eye closed, if you're here this morning, and you're saying here, Gabe, I've, I've potentially been a part of the crowd, but I've never surrendered my heart to Jesus. I've played the church game, but I've never ripped the roof off and allowed Jesus to have every single bit of access to my life. I love you in this moment just to raise your hand so I can pray with you. If you've never given your life to Jesus, can you lift your hand very quickly? I see that hand. Is there anyone else?
Father, I thank you as, as, as that hand is lifted, I pray for right now, Jesus, it's a response to you saying, Jesus, I, I, will, I, I repent of living on the outskirts. I repent of living separated from you. I, I repent of living according to my own strength and my own abilities. I repent of my sin. And I turn to you, Jesus, the one who created me and the one who saved me by your blood. I thank you, Father God, this divine mystery of salvation would take place in their hearts. And that that which is dead would come alive. That which is lost would be found. That which was broken would be made whole by the blood of Jesus. I pray this over them. And as we continue to pray right now, we're going to land this time. I know we've gone a little bit long, but I believe God is doing something profound in us at this season. If you're here this morning and you're saying, actually, I feel that I've settled for limitations in my life. I've settled for low ceilings. Maybe it's you've settled with just going along in the crowd. Maybe you've settled with just the limitations that have been spoken over you, that you've allowed your sin, your own, your own brokenness just to be the, the, the weight of your head. Maybe it's the, the voice of man that just caught you, that's held you back, and you've never been able to apprehend Jesus and move into what he's got for you. You've not accessed the divine rights he's got for you. I believe this. I, I don't mind if it's two, three, four people, but I feel there's more than that. If that is you this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something brave, because if you, like me, are saying, actually, I cannot just stand on the outside and go, let this moment pass. I've got to apprehend Jesus, tear the roof off to get to him. I'm going to ask you just to step out of your chair and come to the front. No band are playing. I'll, I'll just come to the front. All I'm going to ask you to do is to come to the front, and I'm going to ask people to come and pray for you. There's some people up front who, if you move to the front, that's awesome. Just come, and there's some guys who will pray with you. If I can ask other leaders just to come and pray for guys that come up. I, I, sometimes I think we've got, to, we've got to make a move. We've got to make a move and tear the roof off. Sometimes we can get so apathetic and so, yeah, that's good for those people, but allow God to grab hold of our hearts. If there's anyone else, come forward and there'll be people to pray with you. And the rest of us, why don't we lift our hands to Jesus? We're going to pray. We're going to land this time. If you still stir in your heart, say, actually, I need to make a move. I need to apprehend Jesus in this moment. Come out your seat whenever we pray. Just come and do that. But Father, I pray for the rest of us. I pray for us as a community. I thank you that you've not called us to be a safe, sanitized, secluded community that exists for ourselves. You've called us to be a people of tear the roof off faith. A people that will not settle under ceilings, a people that will not settle uh, just in the crowds, will not settle just with the voice of the critics declaring our past. Remember your past, remember your failure, remember your sin. We'll be a people who will bypass that to go up. When everything around us feels like it's squeezing us, we'll say we have access to Jesus. I thank you, Father God, that you're putting a new spark in our hearts, a bounce in our steps as we choose to lift our eyes and see what you're doing. I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus.